The year is 289. The setting is Morocco and North Africa. The occasion is the emperor's birthday. And on this occasion, a centurion named Marcellus stands before his hundred men and he says, I have an announcement. I've become a Christian. I can no longer serve the emperor. The governor, Fortunatus, had Marcellus arrested, and Marcellus found himself before the court. Agricola was the judge. And the conversation between Agricola and Marcellus went something like this. Agricola said, Marcellus, are you guilty of becoming a Christian? And Marcellus simply said, yes. And then the judge asked him this. He said, what madness, what madness made, your, made you break your oath to the emperor and to believe this Christian foolishness? And Marcellus answered, he said, is it foolishness? Is it foolishness to follow God? And then the, the judge came back and he said, but, but you laid down your weapons, which I think is a fascinating question. And Marcellus responded with, he said, yes, because it's not good for a person who is serving Christ to serve other powers. The judge said, very well, your sentence is death, death by beheading. And Marcellus responds to the judge, may God bless you, Agricola. Seven years later, in neighboring Algeria, there's another Roman this time by the name of Maximilian. It's another birthday, not the emperor's. This is Maximilian's birthday, his 21st. His father, Fabius Victor, loves his son, wants to give him something special for his 21st. And so he has planned a surprise. What he has planned, is he's going to the local military commander and he said, my son is going to join the military. I have special clothes made for him. We're going to have a special occasion. It's going to be a wonderful surprise. The birthday has come. And when Fabius turns to his son, Maximilian, and he says, son, I have a surprise for you. And the surprise is that you're going to be joining the military. His son's face fell. Instead of, instead of the expected gladness, there's tremendous sadness. And the son says, Dad, you know that I'm a Christian. And as a follower of Christ, I can't, I can't follow the emperor in battle. Of course, the father was, was smitten. He was, he was upset. And he said, son, I, I had no idea. I knew you were a Christian, but I didn't realize that this would keep you out of the military. He said, in fact, I've already given your name, and that's irreversible. You either will enlist 
or you'll die. Maximilian said, well, I'll go. I'll go to the commander, but I won't enlist. So the next day, they went to the commander. The commander's name is Dion, and Dion said, when he, when he realized the situation, he, he tries to argue with Maximilian. And he says, but there's, there's other Christians, I think, that are in the military. Why can't you just go ahead and go along? Maximilian's response, I know what is right for me. I will not be a Roman soldier. I'm a soldier of God. Dion said, but don't be foolish. Let me... Just let me put the soldier's badge on you, and I'll forget. I'll forget that you're a Christian. He said, you realize that that's a crime in itself. Maximilian said, I already wear a badge. It's the badge of Jesus. And so Dion said, well, I have no choice but to condemn you to death. Death by beheading. Maximilian's response, he turned to his father. And he says, Dad, I want you to take those special clothes that you made for my birthday, and I want you to give them to the soldier that takes my life. Two men, Marcellus and Maximilian, two men of conviction. We're talking about the cultivation of four qualities in our students. Of four qualities, four C's. And the four C's that we're looking at are character. It's what we started with yesterday. Today we're going to look at the quality of conviction. Tomorrow, curiosity. And on Friday we plan to consider creativity. Four C's. Now, what do we mean when we say conviction? What are we talking about? We just had two pictures of men of conviction. What are we talking about? I'd like to define conviction for our purposes today as godly, passionate belief. Conviction is godly, passionate belief. It's godly. It's godly. It aligns with the nature and character of God. You see, it's possible to be convinced, to be convicted of things that aren't true, that aren't right. What we're talking about here are convictions that align with the way things are. They align with the nature and character of God. So conviction is godly, passionate belief. It's godly. It's also passionate what do we mean there? We mean that the heart and the mind are engaged in this belief. It's not merely something I recite. It's not merely something that I can spit out if you ask for it. It's something that flows from the very core of who I am. It's passionate. It's energizing. It's what I treasure. It's what I genuinely value. It's godly. It's passionate. It's belief. And by belief, we mean what we consider to be true. Yesterday, we spent time thinking about character. Conviction flows out of and is, is connected to character in significant ways. 
When we talk about conviction, though, we're not talking about bullheadedness. We're not talking about stubbornness. We're not talking about an irrational dogmatism. We're not talking about an attitude where you can't be taught. Conviction. Conviction is godly, passionate belief. What does it look like? We've already seen two examples in Marcellus and Maximilian. And I'd like for us to also consider how it looks in when we turn to the, the biblical account of the three Hebrew youths. And I think for that, I'll just wait for a moment here while we get this back up and so we can see that account together. This is a familiar account, and I've skipped the story and going right to the climax of the story. But you know the story of the three Hebrew young men and how their faith was being tested. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you? From my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we'll not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Godly, passionate belief. How did these men get this way? And how can you and I contribute to the formation, to the nurturing of men of conviction like this? That's the question before us. As teachers, we can nourish conviction in our students by once again creating the conditions where conviction thrives and minimizing the conditions that hinder it. That's what we're going to look at today. What are those conditions that nurture godly conviction, godly passionate belief? What are the conditions that hinder it? And to help us answer this question, we want to return to our passage in Proverbs chapter 2. My son... If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom, applying your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you understand 
the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I'd like to zero in today on these verses, verses 3 and 4. If you call out for insight and cry aloud, I want understanding. And if you look for it, you look as for silver. And you search, you search, you search, you search as for hidden treasure. Then you will find. Solomon wants his son to be a godly man. He wants his son to be a man of conviction, a man of character. And he looks at his son and he says, son, you can know God. You can be a man of, of conviction, but there's a price to pay. You have to want it, and you have to want it badly. You have to call out for it. You're going to have to cry for it. You're going to have to look for it and look for it hard. There's a delightful story of a young man that came to Socrates. And he said, Socrates, you're a man of wisdom. Give me wisdom. I want wisdom. And it's, the story goes that Socrates just turned around and began walking away from the young man. He went walking through the streets of Athens till they came to the water, came to the sea, and, and he just kept walking, walked right on into the water. The man that wanted wisdom was following, just followed him right on in. They came to where the water was pretty deep, and Socrates stopped, and he turns around, and he faces the man, and he says, what is it you want? And the man says, I want wisdom. And Socrates supposedly took him, and he pushes him under the water, and he counts to 10, 15, 20 seconds. And then he lets the man up, the man's looking a little surprised. And Socrates said, what do you want? He says, I want wisdom. Socrates takes him, he pushes him down under, counts to 20, 25, 30 seconds. The man lets the man up. By this time, the man's kind of sputtering and wheezing a little bit. And Socrates says, what do you want? He says, I want wisdom. Oh, wise Socrates. Before he's even finished, Socrates has him down underwater again. And he counts to 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 seconds. He lets the man up. He says, what do you want? And the man says, I want air. And Socrates says, when you want wisdom like you want air, then that's when you can get it. And I see something of that heart in Solomon here where he's saying, son, there is wisdom. There is conviction. There is truth. You're going to have to want it. That's the only way to get there. It's a picture of the search. You see, he says, I have words. 
And I want you to store up those words. I want you to read those words. I want you to know those words. I have things to teach you, to tell you. But he said, that's not. That's not the same thing as conviction. It's not the same thing as the knowledge of God. And Solomon says, what will move us and what will move his son, what will move our students from mere words and information to conviction and the knowledge of God is the search. The search. Son, you're going to have to work for this. It's going to be a struggle. I'm giving you the mind, the words, if you will. I'm giving you the mind where the gold is. But you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to tease it out. It's here, but it's not as available as you might think. You're going to have to search. And so, when we think about our students and our classrooms, what are those conditions that will nurture our students? I would suggest, first of all, that it is that one of the conditions that nurture convictions is a place classrooms where the search is understood the search is understood well what is it about the search that we need to understand teachers as teachers we need to understand that the search is the bridge from knowledge to wisdom information is not the same as passionate belief. Data is not the same as wisdom. Words, teachings are not the same as conviction. And his father wants his son to know that it's not enough to merely hear or to memorize or to regurgitate on a test what the teacher has said. The ability to recite is not nearly the same as passionate belief. The search is the bridge from knowledge to wisdom. I suspect that much of what passes for the belief is merely unchallenged data. You see, what's belief for me and what I'm passionate about, when I give it to you, it's merely information. Belief for me, does, and when I tell that belief, does not immediately translate into belief for you. Secondly, we need to understand, well, actually before that, no, let's go on, come back. We need to understand that the search is work. We need to understand that this search is a struggle. It involves the struggle of our hearts and our students' hearts and minds to understand. I remember so well taking calculus for the first time. I was excited about it. I enjoy math. But I went into the class, and, and I found myself, it felt like I was in a fog. It was, I was hearing these ideas, and I was seeing how to do some things, 
but I had no clue as to why I would ever want to do this. And it was like, I can perform the mechanics of what you're telling me. I can kind of memorize some of the words, but somewhere along the line, I think it was two or three weeks into the process that the lights went on. And I began to understand but it wasn't until I had worked and worked and worked many calculus problems before those lights came on. It took work. And by the way, when the lights did come on, I found an inner passion for calculus that resulted because of the search, because of that work. Think of a person. You think of a person who demonstrates conviction, passionate belief in some area, and I'll show you a person who has struggled and has questioned and has searched, has worked in that same area. This previous slide, I believe, is a bit out of place. Let's just take a look at it. You know, pencil lead and diamond are chemically the same substance. Those of you who teach science, I'm sure you, you've come across that. Pencil lead is one of the softest substances that we know, graphite. It's used as a lubricant. And the chemical composition or the bonding of it makes it so that it's easy for one layer to slide off the next. That's why it's so soft. And that's why we use it for pencil lead. You can just slide off one layer off the next one. Diamond is chemically exactly the same stuff as pencil lead. The only difference is that the diamond is pencil lead that has undergone tremendous heat and pressure. That's a picture of the work involved in the search. The search is work. It's a struggle. Again, you show me someone passionate, I'll show you someone has struggled there. You show me, you think in your own life, areas where you believe with conviction, and I'll show you a place that you've wrestled and you struggle. Ernest Shackleton is an explorer, was an explorer who is known, well known for how well he took care of the people under his command. And if you read his story, it, it's very impressive how the men who went through incredible difficulties would say, we'd do it again because he was such a great leader. Well, what was it that built that kind of character and that kind of quality, that kind of conviction into his life. Well, if we, if we look at his story, we find that at 16, he actually went and spent four years in apprenticing on ships. And the men that led him were not men that cared about the individual. It's, it's stories of uh, incredible pain, stories of great difficulty and where uh, one of those is how that, as, as an apprentice, Shackleton had to participate in the loading of 2,600, 170-pound bags of, I uh, forget, I think it was rice, but I, I forget. But that was just one of kind of the daily experiences that he would have had. It was, and, and there was no reason, the time that he lived, there was no reason they would have had to do that kind of backbreaking work. But the people in charge, that was the way they operated on the first Arctic, uh, Antarctic expedition that he was on, 
Shackleton was, was working for a man named uh, a Commander Scott. And this commander clearly cared more about exercising military discipline than he did about his men. Even when they were down there under very, very cold conditions, he made his men come out every day and scrub the deck. Uh, this was many, many degrees below zero. They said the water would just freeze almost instantly. But he said, we're going to do it because that's what we do even though his men were dying in the process. Shackleton went through those difficult experiences and because of that, through that, became a man who was convinced, a man that, that was convinced that you took care of your people. It was the struggle, it was the work that developed that kind of conviction in him. As teachers, we need to understand that the search is the only path to godly conviction. I'll tell you, I'm a wimp. I don't like pain, and I don't like to see my children struggle. I don't like to see them needing to work too hard. But that is the path to godly conviction. As teachers, we shouldn't quickly, too quickly rescue our children from the difficult situations that can develop godly conviction in them. I know just recently, one of our children was, was facing a situation uh, and they were asked to do something and as they were participating in this, uh, they ran into some, some relational questions and difficulties that you know, as a dad, I just wanted to, to remove our child from that situation. Oh, I didn't like it. I didn't like what was going on. Fortunately, we didn't. And it turned out that that situation was really a beautiful learning experience. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity that our child had there. As I was thinking about what we should do in relation to the situation, I was reminded again of the cocoon. And I'd like to just for us to read this, uh, this piece with an unknown author. It says, one day as a small opening appeared on a cocoon, a man sat for several hours watching the butterfly struggle to force its body through that little hole. And as teachers, sometimes it's the way it feels like with our students. And then it seemed to stop making any progress. It appeared as if it had gotten as far as it could and it could go no further. So the man decided to help the butterfly. He took a pair of scissors and snipped off the remaining bit of the cocoon. The butterfly then emerged easily, but it had a swollen body and small shriveled wings. The wings would enlarge and expand to be able to support the body, which would contract in time. Neither happened. In fact, the butterfly spent the rest of its life crawling around with a swollen body and shriveled wings. It never was able to fly. What the man, in his kindness and haste, did not understand was that the restricting cocoon and the struggle required for the butterfly to get through the tiny opening was nature's way of forcing fluid from the body of the butterfly into its wings. 
Then the butterfly would be ready for flight once it achieved its freedom from the cocoon. Sometimes struggles are exactly what we need in our life. The search is the only path to godly conviction. What are the conditions that nurture conviction? A second conviction is a place where the search is invited and encouraged. We said, first of all, we need places, classrooms, where the search is understood. But that's not enough. We need places, classrooms, where the search is invited and encouraged. We invite and encourage by telling our stories of the search. As an 18-year-old, our ministers at the congregation where I attended then in South Carolina came to us and they said, young people, it's important that you write what your convictions are about serving in the military. You need to write your CO papers, your conscientious objector papers. And I sat down to write, but I didn't have anything to say. I knew, I knew that I didn't want to go to war, but that's a far cry from a conviction that I shouldn't. I knew that I wanted to believe that I shouldn't kill, but that's not the same as actually believing it. And so I didn't write those papers. And then several years later, in my first year of college, and I know a number of you have heard me talk about this, so I ask uh, for your forbearance. First year of college, I walked into one of the, to my favorite teacher's office to talk about something unrelated to this, but he never let me get to that subject. He took control of the conversation right away, and he said, Brubaker, you're a Mennonite, aren't you? And he said it with a bit of a smile. I said, yes, sir. And then he offered this question, which just continues to burn in my mind. He says, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to live in a country where your freedom has been bought with my blood? And if it wasn't before, the search was on for me. If all I had before were words and ideas and teachings, it wasn't enough. I stumbled around, I, I spewed out some of the things that I had been told and wanted to believe. But it was quite a conversation, and I won't, I won't tell you the rest of it. But he proceeded to pick apart my arguments, what I had to say, my logic, all of that. It was, it was one of the best lessons that I ever had in college. The search was on. The search didn't stop there. It's continued over the years. It's continued as 
a business owner and trying to decide what I should do and what is okay to do in terms of collecting thousands of dollars of bad debt. And what do you do when someone comes along and says, look, you don't have to worry about that. I'll take care of it. Just turn that debt over to me and I'll see that you get at least some of your money. You won't have to sue. You won't have to do anything. I'll take care of it. I could write my CO papers today. I have conviction in these areas. It's because I've gone through the search, the struggle. I'm going through the search, the struggle. It's one of my stories that I tell. When our students hear our stories, that we wrestle, that we work, that we search, it gives them permission and an invitation to search as well. Recently, I heard a friend of mine telling a group of young people his crisis of faith and how at one point uh, he got to the place where he was even, he, he said, I began to realize that it was a distinct possibility in my mind that there was no God. And as he told his story, it opened the door for good, honest questions from those he was talking to. We invite and encourage the search by telling our stories of the search. We also invite and encourage by asking questions. It's not enough just to be okay with students uh, working, searching, questioning. We need to be asking questions. As teachers, we shouldn't merely have answers. We ought to have questions for our students. I've found that the persons who first ask the significant questions of students have tremendous power in influencing how those questions are answered. And the power of those significant questions are often diffused. You want a way to grow as a teacher? I would encourage you to develop your skill in asking questions. I just want to offer a few things. There's much more that could be said here. Good questions are planned in advance. Very few of us have the skill and the capacity to ask good questions on the spot plan them, work on them. Ask questions that have a variety of good answers. We're not talking about just test questions here. Who was it that sailed the ocean blue in 1492? We're not talking about that kind of question. Questions that have multiple good answers. Ask questions that call for thinking and not merely recall. Ask questions that, that stretch our students. You, you're, some of you, many of you are probably familiar with Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, and use that to help ask questions of higher level thinking. 
and allow for adequate time to think after the question. If you're going to ask this kind of question, there's going to have to be time to process. There's going to have to be time to think. And maybe better than even getting, asking questions is to encourage our students to ask their own questions. We invite and encourage by telling our stories, by asking questions, by taking seriously their search, their questions, their struggles. Our students need to know that honest questions are taken seriously. That, and I think we should take all questions, even if they're not honest. We should take them seriously, that they're welcomed. We need to make our classrooms places that's safe to be on the search. Conditions that nurture conviction. Third, a place classrooms where finding or discovery is celebrated. It's important for us to emphasize that searching is not an end in itself. We've emphasized the search here today. And I think that's appropriate. But the search is not the end. The search is not the goal. Discovery is. Finding is. When searching is an end in itself, we have skeptical students, not students of conviction. While we invite the struggle, we celebrate the discovery. There's a big difference between the two. We're open to the struggle, the search, but what we celebrate is the discovery. The discovery involves commitment, turning, believing, giving ourselves to what it is we have found in the search. And I think it's vital that we give our students multiple opportunities to express what they believe. We, don't, we need to get excited by every nugget of discovery and not merely the mother load. But when we see students that have, have wrestled, that have searched, and they say, you know, I'm convinced of this, to get excited about that, to celebrate that, to honor that. A place where finding, discovery, commitment, turning, believing, is celebrated. Someone has said that there is a simplicity on the near side of complexity. They've also observed that there is complexity. There is a struggle, there is work, but there is a simplicity on the far side of complexity. And that simplicity is quite different than the simplicity on the near side. And that's what Solomon is calling his son to. And he's saying, there is something to know. There is truth. There is wisdom. And you can move there. But it's going to involve the search. One of my favorite illustrations of the difference between the simplicity on the near side and the simplicity on the far side is the little phrase, Jesus loves me. As a father, I have found it incredibly delightful 
to see when my children could first say that. Jesus loves me. But why did they say that? It wasn't passionate belief for them. It wasn't conviction for them. It was, it was parroting what they heard their mom and their dad say. It was a simplicity on the near side of complexity. But you know, as our children, as you and I, as we go through life, we have, we begin to really wrestle with that. Does God really love me? If he does, why did this happen? Why does that happen? How do I make sense out of this, out of this, out of this? And we're in the midst of the search. We're in the midst of the complexity. And you know what that feels like? It does feel like complexity. But there is a simplicity on the other side. Remember the story told of, of the aged theologian who'd spent his life searching, studying, learning as a theologian and as a pastor. And toward the end of his life, he, made, he, was, a, he was German. When he came to the United States, and he's, he's there at the, the dock, he's met by hundreds of reporters because he's very famous. He's met by these reporters, and one of the reporters comes up to him and he says, can you tell us, out of everything that you've learned in life, out of everything that you've studied, boil it down. What's the most important thing you know? And he said, this, this, this man, with tears running down his face, said, Jesus loves me. Same words, tremendous simplicity, but a simplicity on the other side of complexity. A simplicity that has been shaped and formed in the crucible of the search. What then are the conditions that hinder conviction? The conditions that hinder conviction. One of those is the quick answer. The answer which merely tells. And as a teacher, when I know something, that's what I want to give. A, a student asks me a, something that I know, I just want to tell them. But you see, that's all it does. It merely tells them. Just recently, uh, our family was traveling somewhere, and one of the children said, Dad, I have a question for you. Said, uh, you know, so some of the people in the youth group are doing this and this. Said, Dad, if we were to ask you, don't you love that question? If we were to ask you if we could do that, what would your response be? Now, the situation had already occurred, and, and I knew that. So I, I knew that it really was a hypothetical question, but they were saying, what would you do? And so, you know, I, I, had, I had thought about that question. And so I began to hold forth and gave some very compelling uh, responses to that question, or so I thought. And, but I, I, I listed what my response would be and why my response would be that. And they took it very well. They, they uh, interacted with it just a bit. You know, afterwards, I was talking with, with my wife about this, and she said, she said, Stephen, you know, you blew it there. She didn't use those exact words. She's sitting back there, so I have to be careful. Uh, but she said, 
you know, if you would listen to what you say about this subject, you would have given them an opportunity to wrestle with it. I could have said, well, what would your response be if you were asked to do that? Would you do it? Why or why not? Instead, I just tried to move right around the search and tried to give them answers. The quick answer, which merely tells. The pat answer is another condition that hinders conviction. The pat answer doesn't answer. You know, as Christian people, we have this reputation, and I, I think it's deserved, for giving simplistic answers to difficult questions. Uh, they tell a story in the South about a preacher over in Atlanta, how that he decided to, to do children's church. And so before he had his main message for the adults, he'd have all the children come up, they'd sit on the front row, and he would talk to them about, um, you know, some things on, on their level. And on this particular Sunday morning, he was there. He said, uh, now children, I saw yesterday, I saw this animal outside my office window while I was studying. It was a small little animal. It was great. Does anyone want to guess what this animal was? And they're just sitting there very quietly. And he said, well, he said this animal was, was running around up through the trees, and he said it would, it would grab nuts and it would sit there and, and chew on these nuts. Does anybody want to guess? Guess what the animal is? It's quiet. Finally, one little boy tentatively raises his hand and he says, well, pastor, I know, I know that the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. Well, that's the kind of reputation we can sometimes get. But we're going to give a pat answer. Those kinds of answers hinder the development of godly conviction. You're not going to have time to get this down, but I just recently ran across another list that, of conditions that hinder conviction. Just quickly. Encourage passivity. Make education boring. Condition rather than convince your students. Build walls to keep out opposing ideas. Don't let them ever come into the discussion. Tell students what to think, but not why. Do not allow provocative questions and opinions. Rely on straw men arguments to represent others' views emphasize reciting propositions rather than understanding them. I've approached this subject this morning, the development of conviction, with junior high and senior high students in mind. There are applications for younger students, by all means, but I have not really worked to develop that. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.